All right, I want to say a couple things before we actually read the passage we're going to be in. Um, I want to, we're going to deal with one phrase today. Uh, and the reason I want to do that, well, first of all, I, I began this week preparing a different sermon, which I do think I will preach at some point. But I began pre, uh, preparing for a different sermon, and in that preparation, I came to this section in Judges, and I was reading through it, and I came to a, a verse here in chapter 8 that literally stopped me in my tracks, because I, re I read it, and I started to see, it stopped me because I, I, I realized the thoroughly biblical nature of this phrase. And I, I started seeing it all over Scripture, not in terms of actually seeing the particular phrase in its words, but seeing it in action, seeing it happening all over the place in the Bible. My hope is that as we, as we look at this, you also would not only come to recognize this as characteristic of the Christian life, but it would be helpful to you as you deal with these things in your Christian life. So obviously you're probably asking, well, what is it? <laughs> what is the phrase? So let's, uh, let's look here. Judges chapter 8. The verse is going to be verse 4. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm just going to do this briefly real quick, just so you can see, understand a little bit briefly where I'm getting this verse out from. God came to Gideon and told him there were these armies that were coming in and they were coming against uh, Israel and God promised Gideon that he would give these armies into his hand for destruction. And so Gideon, a couple different things happen where he wants to validate God's call to do that and then they go out in battle against, uh, against these armies, against Midian. And the, the other army flees away. And then we see Gideon and his army basically chasing after the army, chasing them out of the land of Israel. And here's where we're at. Chapter 8, verse 4. It says, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And so that's our phrase, brethren. That's what struck me. That, those three words, exhausted yet pursuing. And, and maybe I get it. Maybe at the start, those words don't do much to you. Because I'll be honest with you, I've read Judges more times than I can count, and I have never stopped at that phrase. Not one time have I ever remembered stopping at that phrase and having it do something to me. But oftentimes, as many of you have heard me talk about in regards to reading books, some of you know this reality. Some of the books, maybe that you've read, not necessarily biblical books, but just any book that maybe you've read that has had the greatest impact on you, is not even really a book that might be the best book you've ever read, but it was a book that you read at a particular time which caused it to have the greatest impact on you. Some books are, have been like that for me. I've read certain books and they have been, they're still probably in my top three favorite books. And I know there are other books that I've read that are as equally as good. 
but they will never be as good because of the particular time in which I encountered that particular book. And so for me, as I read this chapter and I read this verse, I will tell you personally, it has brought me um, encouragement. It's brought me a reinvigorated excitement to seek after Christ. For many reasons, brethren, I have been exhausted. I have been exhausted over the past... Honestly, I don't even really know how long. It's almost sort of like a blur when I didn't feel like that last time. But especially over the last couple of months, maybe, certainly over the last couple of weeks, I have been utterly exhausted. And so I came to this verse and I came to this phrase and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That we ought to be people that are like Gideon and his army, that though we are exhausted, we ought to be continuing our pursuit. And so that's what I want us to deal with. What does it mean that we would be a people that are exhausted yet pursuing? Because undoubtedly you will find yourself there. Now, listen, I recognize that this is not the normal way that we have really preached in this church, and it's not the normal way that you might hear most sermons. This sermon is not going to have anything to do with the particular context of this verse. We're not dealing with Judges chapter 8. I'm not going to work through it verse by verse. I'm not going to really deal with the context almost at all. I know its original context, obviously. I, I stated it to you. The situation of Gideon and God displaying His glory by saving this little 300-person army from an army that was massive. I mean, in the story, it literally says that the camels, not even the people, if you, if you recognize how warfare went back then, however many camels they had, they had way more people, right? So it says that the camels were like the sand on the seashore. The army was huge that Gideon was going against. And the, the glory that that God received from saving the Israelites, a 300-person army, from this massive army. This is a glorious story, no doubt. But brethren, I'm not, I'm not going there. I want, I want to purposefully take this phrase, and I want to show it to you in its biblical nature. I want to pull it out, and I want to show you that this does, in fact, I think, exemplify the Christian life. And like I said, some of you have certainly dealt with it. And if you haven't, you will. You will find yourself exhausted. And when you find yourself exhausted in the midst of this race, brethren, the question that we need to deal with is, will you be exhausted yet pursuing? Or will you be exhausted and asleep? Because those are not the same. There's nothing, there's nothing ungodly about being exhausted in the race. But there is when that exhaustion causes you to stop pursuing God. That does become a problem. And I know I've talked about this a bunch. Aaron and Manny always get on me about it. But I have to have a Bunyan quote in my sermon, so it just is the way it is. But in Pilgrim's Progress, those of you who have read it, you know that Bunyan deals with this a bunch. Right? He, he comes in the gate 
when he almost when he first comes in the gate, there he's on the road on the path, and he finds three people sleeping on the road, slothful and I can't remember the names of the other two right now, but nevertheless he comes across them and they're sleeping on the road, and their legs are actually chained. So they can't get up. They can't continue on the path to the heavenly city. And Christian tries to wake him up. He says, hey, hey, wake up. I will help you. I'll help you take these chains off. We can walk on our way. I'll walk with you. And what do they say? No, we're okay. We'll sleep. We'll, we'll stay here. And then as he continues and, and makes his way on, you see, you, see him, you see Christian himself deal with it. Remember, he goes, he's up the hill, going up the hill of difficulty, and there's an arbor there, and he says, oh, this is a beautiful place to, for weary pilgrims to come and rest, and he falls asleep. And you remember what happens? Those of you who have read it, he loses his scroll, right? He gets to the top of the hill and, real, and kicks himself, because he's got to walk the same path three times. He's got to go back down and get his scroll, which he left, to then just go right back up and continue on the path. And so he kicks himself because he realizes he fell asleep and he, and he was a weary pilgrim and he fell asleep and he lost his scroll in the process. So brethren, I, I want this to be an encouragement to you. Maybe it will be a great encouragement to you now or maybe it won't be necessary now, but it will be in the future and I want you to remember these words. So I want you to see this. I want you to see that we are indeed called to continue our pursuit of God though we find ourselves exalted or exhausted. So go to Hebrews 12. We, we read this in our readings. And anybody who would be somewhat privy to have listened to my preaching over the last bit of time, maybe the two years we've been down here and doing things. I've probably preached three sermons on this passage, so this is probably one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. But let's look at this again. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you see this, brethren, quite clearly, right? We are to run the race with endurance. You know what endurance means? Endurance means that you would have the ability and to withstand hardship. To run the race with an ability to withstand the difficulty that will come during the race. To, to be able to sustain a prolonged, stressful situation or endeavor. That's what it means to endure. 
Brethren, it means that you would be exhausted yet pursuing. That's what it means to endure. And what does the Scripture tell us that we're to pursue? Well, there really, there really isn't one answer, of course. There's a lot of different answers. But brethren, we are to pursue none other than the Lord Himself. We're no doubt pursuing our God and the knowledge of our God. I want you to see this. Turn to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, we're going to read the first three verses. This is, the, this is the call of the prophet to sinful, to sinful Israel, to idolatrous Israel. This is what he's telling them. Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will rise, raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let us know, brethren. Let us press on. You see that idea? Obviously, it's, you heard what I said in the beginning. I'm seeing this phrase all over the Bible, not in terms of the exact words, but you get it there. Let us press on to know the Lord. Why would you need to press on to know the Lord? Because it's going to require that kind of type of thing, to press into it, to seek it, to diligently go after it. To pursue it. And did our Lord not tell us that eternal life is found in nothing other than knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent? John 17, 3. Seeking to know the Lord. Pursuing to know Him. And Jeremiah tells us that that kind of knowledge is really the only thing that the Lord is concerned about. Go over here. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. God is not concerned with any of those things. But... Let him boast, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, righteousness, and justice in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's what the Lord delights in. 
Not, not, in the, not in the wise man's wisdom and not in the mighty man's might and not in the rich man's riches. All of those things are coming from the Lord anyway. But brethren, the Lord delights in that we know Him, that we understand Him. This is what we're pursuing. This is what we're seeking after. After. What else? Well, if we go through Scripture, you can find a lot of things that we're pursuing. We're pursuing His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. We're pursuing His compassion, His mercy, His pardoning grace. Isaiah 55, 6-7. We're pursuing, brethren, His manifest presence. Or at least we ought to be. Go to, go to John 14. This is a glorious passage. This is a passage where, I'll be honest with you, for years I read it and I never knew what to do with it. It just, it just puzzled me. And uh, I listened to a man preach a sermon on it once. And I don't even really know if he clarified it that much, but... But I will tell you this, he did convince me that, that what is happening here is Jesus is promising something very glorifying or, or very glorious and something that we want. Even if we can't totally put flesh on it and totally explain what exactly it means, it is something that we want. So look at this, John 14, starting in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So you see that. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So these, listen, there's some glorious stuff here if we have eyes to see it. Jesus says, that if we love Him and we keep His commandments, if we're seeking Him, if we're seeking Christ, if we're pursuing Christ and we're pursuing righteousness, He will manifest Himself to us. And He says that me, Jesus, and the Father will come and make our home with that one. Make our home with Him. Listen, I don't know what exactly it means for Jesus and the Father to come and make their home with us, but you want it, I can promise you that. Brethren, we're talking about communion and fellowship with God that is on a, a different level than I think most of us know. There is something, I talked, I've talked about this with Sergio before, it may be some others, but you read some of these missionary biographies and just biography in general. Maybe I've talked about it with Baumach too, but you find a sense of communion at times in, in believers of the past. That you read what they wrote and you read what they did and you read about their life and you think, 
Something is so off in my own life, in my own fellowship with God. And I'm not saying that even those people didn't look at other people and think the same thing. I'm sure they maybe did. But brethren, there is something glorious here if we would pursue after it. Jesus has promised us glorious things. He will manifest Himself to us. He will make His home with us. But there's a pursuit necessary of Him. And we read those other verses in 1 Chronicles. You remember the charge. David sat Solomon before him and he said to him, If you seek him, if you seek God, he will be found by you. There's a promise. If you seek him, he will make himself known to you. He will be found by you. But what was the flip side? Huh? What was it? That's right. That's right. So you have, you have the promise of if you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, what does He say? He will cast you off forever. There's, some, there's, some, there's some, certainly some danger there, but there's a glorious part, right? I have often gone to that verse in prayer, in just meditating upon the things of God and, and upon Christ. And I've brought that, brought that verse to God. Lord, you said if I seek you, you will make yourself be found by me. And I'm seeking. I'm trying to pursue. God has often come through with that prayer. So brethren, we're pursuing that. We're pursuing His manifest presence to us. We're pursuing His help through the Spirit. Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen 13, that the Father would grant us more of the Spirit if we would but ask for it. If we would but ask for it. We're pursuing holiness, without which, the Scripture says, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. We're pursuing service to God, and in the midst of it, not growing weary in doing good. Galatians 6, 9. Brethren, we're pursuing that we might abound in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We're pursuing by any means possible, as Paul might put it, the physical bodily resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3.11 We are pursuing, brethren, that eternal dwelling wherein sin no longer dwells and God shines as its light. Revelations 22 And listen, these might just be considered some of the things, some of the things in Scripture that we ought to pursue. The race for us is far from over. If you look back at, at the story in Judges, I talked about it briefly. I am going to deal a little bit with the context, I guess. But if you look back at the story in Judges, this will get some of the people off my back who don't like listening to this kind of thing. But, but nevertheless, if you, if you see the context in Judges, 
You find that God told Gideon, I'm going to give these armies into your hand for destruction. And as, as Gideon comes out with his armies, the, ar the other army flees away. And what you might think what would happen at that point is, okay, cool, they all go back to their houses, the other army flees, and that's it. This is no Why pursue after them? There'd be no necessity to go after the army, right? They ran away. The, the deed is done. Israel is no longer in danger. But they don't do that. They pursue after them. And they do it for a reason. Because God promised to Gideon, I will give these armies into your hand for destruction. That's what they were going to do. They were going to destroy them. So that that wouldn't happen again. And so that's what we find him doing. You see Gideon come out. We, our passage, they come over the, the river Jordan. And they're pursuing after them. The deed, the task was unfinished. God had given them a task to do, and it wasn't done yet. The armies hadn't been destroyed yet. And so they're continuing pursuit. And so how does this come into connection with us? Well, no doubt, brethren, I, I, I almost, I was very close to changing a song on Sergio last minute. But I didn't, I didn't do it. Because we've never sang it before. So some of you maybe won't even know where this is from, but there is a hymn, and it says, Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. Brethren, the, our race is not over. If you're still here, you're still in the race. It's not done. You haven't reached the finish line yet. There is still cause to pursue, to chase after it. And there is for us a great promise of reward at the end of that pursuit for all those who chase after the Lord. And now I want to bring to light here something for you. We, we read it back in Hebrews chapter 12. But I want to bring to light something that we read there. In that passage, you find it said that we're, so we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and therefore we ought to run the race with endurance. And so what exactly does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that we are to look to those who have ran that race before us, see their example, and be able to run in like manner. In the, in the book of Hebrews, in the chapter directly before it, chapter 11, the author runs through a whole gamut of Old Testament people and what they did and their faith and their example. And just following that, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance. That's the idea, right? He, he lays these people out so that you might see them. And, and how they walked in faith and how God worked in them. And then he says, boom, since you have all these people, lay aside every sin and wait and run with endurance this race. So I think it's biblical then for us to examine those who went before us. And it would be too long to deal with too many. But I want to deal with two in particular. I want you to see that two people in particular that I thought of, which I feel like I could deal with somewhat, somewhat briefly, exemplify this life of being exhausted yet pursuing. First one is going to be Paul. 
We're going to see what his life, his life was one that could certainly be described as that. And the second one I want you to see is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider Paul. We know his task, right? His task was that of being an apostle, missionary to the Gentiles. And his aim was to preach Christ where Christ was not yet named. That was his whole purpose. That was his whole point. And brethren, undoubtedly, the pursuit of that kind of task would have brought large amounts of exhaustion. And yet, what we find in Scripture is that he was unhindered by any level of exhaustion in the pursuit of that particular task. Paul tells us all the things in which he faced. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Well, maybe not even all the things in which he faced, but... A good number of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11. We're going to start in the second half of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman. Now watch, here he is about to embark on all of the things that Paul dealt with in his missionary labors. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Brother, I think it's somewhat humorous how this sentence sits right in the middle of all of these other things. I know I'm breaking it right in the middle, but I, I have listened to countless sermons and conferences and all of these things. And I was reading this literally just before I walked over here and I thought to myself, how many times I have heard different men, good men, godly men, nothing evil to say about them, but how they would speak about how unbelievably they exhausted they are of traveling from place to place to preach at these different places. And I think... Paul says, on frequent journeys, right in the middle of all these other things. This is just a part of Paul's life. I'm just, I just travel everywhere, and I don't take an airplane either. I walk. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, 
Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I mean, there's danger everywhere, apparently. In toil and hardship, for many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, that just a plug here, that should be rendered often in fasting. In cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Brethren, if anybody had the right in the middle of their ministry to claim exhaustion, it would be him, would it not? I mean, all of these things, imprisonments, beatings, lashes, beaten with rust, stoned. People who were stoned died. Paul is stoned in the book of Acts. You can go read it. And they thought he was dead. And then he gets up and, and walks off. Shipwreck. A night and a, a day adrift at sea. Danger from robbers and danger from his own people. Danger from other people. He can't go anywhere. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. He can't go anywhere or go to anybody without being in danger. And he's got no food, he's got nowhere to sleep, often fasting in the cold, exposed out in the wilderness, and on top of all that, he has to deal with the churches which are often being led astray by false teaching. Exhaustion, brethren. Exhaustion. Myself and Manny and Aaron have often talked about the things that we have had to face just since planting the church. And I read this and I'm, I'm, I'm put to shame. I'll be honest with you. I'm put to shame. It doesn't mean that I'm not exhausted, but it does mean that this man has been through far more than I have ever been through in the middle of ministry. And he continued. He pursued. He chased after it. He tells us later that he fought the good fight. He kept the faith. He finished the race. And therefore, there is a crown laid up for him, a crown of righteousness. Brethren, it's, again, it's no sin to be exhausted. Undoubtedly, Paul was exhausted. But the question is, what did he do in light of the exhaustion? Did he cease his work? Did he cease his pursuit? He didn't. He pressed onward. He sought to the end of it. Brethren, he tells us why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That was his aim. He endured all of it, not for himself, but for the sake of the elect. Paul had a desired end, and that end could not stop him. 
No matter, no matter the exhaustion, because of the end that he was seeking after, the pursuit had to continue. It couldn't end. He desired the salvation of eternal souls. And he pursued it. And no doubt there's many others. Ones that we would not have time to speak of. You could go all through the Bible. You could find men like David, who though on the run for his life, tons of times, continues to just sing praises to God in the midst of it. We could look at the prophets, how they just continue to call out to a sinful, rebellious nation. Turn to God. Turn to God. Turn to God. And they don't listen. Certainly would have been exhausting. We could speak of Stephen, first martyr in the New Testament for the name of Christ. We could speak of many others after that time that came, that stood upon the shoulders of those men all the way down through history. Men like Athanasius. Athanasius at one point was one of the only people still standing for the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is truly man and truly God. It was said of him, Athanasius contramundum. Athanasius against the world. Athanasius against the world. Continuing to pursue truth. Women like Perpetua, a martyr from northern Africa, would not denounce her faith. Would not do it. Very young Christian who was actually martyred. And many others, all the way down through history, not all martyrs, some of which live long lives and serve the Lord. Men, Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller, David Brainerd, women, Amy Carmichael, Gladys Hall. I mean, you could go down the names of all these people giving their lives in sacrificial service to God. No doubt, brethren, no doubt, exhausted and yet pursuing. But there is, of course, one example that does rise above every other example, and that is of Jesus Christ. If you look at His life, brethren, you will find Him exhausted yet pursuing. You find Him in Mark chapter 1. Go there for a moment. Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, He, this is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. So, He's leaving while it's still dark, no one else is awake. Very early, it says, in the morning. And he's going out to a place to pray. And then look what happens here. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now listen for a moment. Again, 
So something that we might just read over and not catch it if we're not tracking through all of this. But I want you to see its connection back to the, to the verse we read in the beginning. Jesus gets up very early while it is still dark. You all know how early that is, right? Not normally the time people are getting up. And he gets up and he goes out to pray. And then the disciples come and they find him. And you know what the first thing he does not say is, before we do anything, I need to go home and rest. I got up very early. I need to go home and relax for a little bit. He says, let's go to the next towns that I might preach there also. For that's why I came out. Brother, and he gets up very early, goes out to pray, and then he's found and he goes, we got to get busy. We got to go. I'm going to preach. This is what I came here to do. Undoubt, I mean, brethren, anybody who's getting up early like that recognizes that it's hard to continue on through the rest of the day like that. And there he goes out preaching town after town after waking up very early after it's dark. You find him a bit later. You don't have to go there, but Mark chapter 4, no doubt so exhausted from ministry Brethren, he's sleeping in a, in a boat that is sinking. That does not happen when you are well rested. Then you find him later on, Mark chapter 6. Look at this. Mark chapter 6. Starting at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So, I mean, you see the compassion of the Lord. These, these people, they come back and no doubt they're exhausted. They tell him all the things that they done and all the things that they taught. And he tells them, Oh, come away, take a rest. And it says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now watch. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there, wherever they were going, ahead of them. Now listen. Jesus tells his disciples, let's go away, rest a while. They go away and they get in the boat. They sail off. The people there see them. They recognize them. Wherever they're going, these people go and they get there first. And they're waiting for them when they get off the boat. And look what happens. 34, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And what do you think Jesus said to them? Go away. I can't be bothered right now. Go away, I'm exhausted. Go away, you guys won't even let me eat. Go away, we just did all this stuff. We're going away to our own rest. Come back later. It says, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Brethren, he purposefully takes these disciples to go away on a rest. And it doesn't, listen, 
what happens to follow is very interesting. Not, not only does it say he had compassion, you can have compassion, feel it, have compassion on the people, and still go, listen, I just can't. I'm so exhausted. But he doesn't do that. What does it say? He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, brethren, he, he takes the disciples. He tells them we're going to go away to rest. He gets to where they're going. The people are already there. They're there hounding him. And then he not only, not only does he ask compassion on them, not only does he teach them, he teaches them late into the night. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and to the villages. Brethren, if you work your way through the Gospels, you will find example after example after example of this very kind of thing. Our Lord Jesus, living a life of utter... The people, I mean, the people that followed him and what they wanted. And, and it says that, that at other times that he would be at someone's house and the crowds would just be barreling down the door to get healed and to hear him preach and all of these things. And he's just, he has compassion on them and he teaches and he pours himself out in his ministry. Now, I don't know what the disciples did in this situation. But certainly Jesus was not taking any rest. He began to teach and he taught late. But beyond all of this, you find him exhausted yet pursuing his appointed task to die in the place of sinners. You know what it said of him in Luke 9, Luke 9, 51 you find him determined to go to the cross. And it says that when his time drew near, that he did something in particular. Does anybody know what it is? I know you'll know. <laughs> he what? That's right. It says that when, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he would find there, brethren. He knew what he was going to deal with when he got to Jerusalem. He knew what he was going to have to endure. He knew that he was going to endure a most excruciatingly painful death. He knew he was going to endure a false trial. He knew he was going to endure enemies on all sides. He knew he was going to endure temptation from the devil. And he knew he was going to endure the wrath of God. And yet he set his face to go to Jerusalem, determined to go in pursuit of that goal. Nothing was going to waver him from it. Not enemies, not his own disciples, who no doubt Satan was seeking to use to hinder him from going to that cross. Why do you think it is that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, when Peter tells him, you're not going to that cross. It's because Jesus knows that's temptation. I'm going to that cross. And you're not going to hinder me from going to that cross. He told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress 
until it is accomplished. How great was his distress until the thing which he came here to do was to be accomplished. Brethren, exhausted and yet pursuing. Set his face. Where, listen, Luke is pulling that from somewhere. Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. Luke, Luke writing and telling us that Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem is taking that from Isaiah chapter 50, no doubt. This section is speaking of the Messiah who was to come. Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That's a great verse to memorize. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Listen. It might be somewhat of a confusing phrase. What in the world does it mean to set your face like flint? There's a lot of times in the Bible where flint is used to indicate something. Flint. Does anybody know what a flint is? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's made to start a fire. So it, it's, a, it's sort of like a rock. <laughs> and, and you hit it, and it sends a spark out so that it'll, it'll light a fire. We don't have any, uh, what do they call them? No. Outdoorsy uh, people? Yeah, yeah. Where's Nick? <laughs> anyway. Anyway, but a flint is a very hard stone, a really hard stone. And so the Bible is often using flint as an example of something that is, that is impenetrable, is sustainable. So when it says that he sets his face like flint, it's hard, it's determined to get to the end, to the goal. And so here he says, But the Lord God has helped me, therefore I have not been disgraced. I have set my face like flint, determined, unbroken, impenetrable. I will do what is to be accomplished, and I will not be put to shame. I won't turn back. I won't be rebellious. I will go on. Not only that, 
The verse up top there, verse 4. You remember the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, being our high priest, what is He able to do? That's right. Sympathize with us. Jesus lived a life where determination in pursuit of a particular goal was absolutely necessary. Enemies on every side, temptation on every side. And here he tells us, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Brethren, our Lord dealt with that. You know, he's, he, he's tempted by the devil. And then what does it say happens right after the temptation? Anybody know? Well, sure, he rebukes the devil. But right after he's done being tempted there in the beginning of his ministry, it says that angels, angels were ministering to him. Brother, if anybody knows what it means to be sustained, being weary, our Lord knows what it means. And not only does he know what it means, he knows how to sustain with a word him who is weary, the other one who's weary. Brethren, Jesus Christ set his face like flint, exhausted in the midst of the pursuit of that goal to die in the place of sinners, and yet was determined to do it. Christ is our supreme example of what it looks like to live in such a way to be exhausted and yet pursuing. And brethren, we will find ourselves in those situations. There's no doubt. You'll be physically exhausted, you'll be mentally exhausted, you'll be spiritually exhausted, or you will be all of them at the same time. And in the midst of all of that, brethren, don't lose sight of the pursuit. In our exhaustion, we have to pursue God. We have to pursue the end of that race. And, and we have a promise in Scripture that God will sustain us in doing so. Go to Isaiah 40. This is our last verse. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 28. Listen to these words. These are glorious words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brethren, God promises us that. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they will run and they will not be weary. Let's pray.